Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes high-quality cookware that's beautiful and affordable. There's a reason why I'm an investor. Grace and I cook at home with Great Jones all the time, making oxtail stews in their cast iron enamel Dutch oven and spaghetti with fish sauce in their stainless steel stock pot. And when I first tried it, I was like, man, this is something I got to back. Great Jones starts at $45 and their whole set costs $395. I'm excited that they can make high quality cookware more widely accessible. If you want to upgrade your kitchen tools without spending a fortune, I highly recommend Great Jones. It's something that everybody can have and use because it's great to look at, highly functional and cooks food very well. Go to greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Very excited for this week's guest, the showrunner Mike Shore, who helped create some of the best comedic series out there ever: The Office, Parks and Recreation, and his most recent accomplishment, The Good Place, which is just wrapping its filming for season four, the the last season, unfortunately, but. I'm just so excited to see how this whole series ends because I think maybe Mike Schur might be the only person that could tackle topics of ethics, morality, the existence of life, things that are mostly spoken about in academic settings. And the fact that he's translated this in a 30-minute NBC comedic show is astounding. Uh, because I'm so excited about this, we're going to just jump right in. Here's my conversation with Mike Schur. We are at Universal Studios, the offices of Mike Shore, and I'm looking at the walls, and it's basically the past sort of 10, 15 years of what I've watched on, <laughs> you know, TV. It's amazing. Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you helped produce Master of None, The Good Place. And that's when I remember, I'm really good friends with Alan Yang, and right. he worked for you, and he was telling me, he's like, yeah, my, my old boss, he's working on this crazy show that he, ha- I guess, helped out a little bit. And I was like, wait, someone's making a show on, I don't even know how to describe it. Are oh, you talking about The Good Place, I yeah, assume? Yeah, The Good Place. Yeah. Um, well, the premise, we're going into our fourth season now. The, the original premise was woman wakes up, is in a weird room, is told she's dead. And she's in essentially heaven, although it's non-denominational. Um, and they, they, she's congratulated on her incredible life of amazing accomplishments and humanitarianism. And then she immediately is like, oh, yeah, they've got the wrong person. <laughs> it's not me. I'm here by mistake. And over the course of the first season, this is a spoiler alert if anyone wants to watch the show. So stop listening now. Um it is slowly revealed, actually, it's revealed at the very end of the first season that the whole thing is a kind of no exit situation where there are four people there who all believe they're in heaven and they're all being tortured. They're actually in hell. So that was the pitch of the show. And I pitched it, um, you know, I guess four years ago now, almost four years ago. 
Alan and I had worked together at Parks and Rec and then on Master of None. And he was around in the first season. He was like a consultant in the first season because he was between Master of None seasons. And then he actually directed an episode in the second season, I think. And um, he was one of the early people I told the idea to because it, it is an insane idea for a network TV show. So I went to some sort of trusted friends and coworkers and kept pitching it to them to sort of stress test it to say like, is this insane? <laughs> or like, how insane is this on a scale of one to 10? He was one of the early people I pitched it to. And he was very supportive, which gave me a lot of hope because he's a very smart dude. But when I first heard the idea, I was like, how is this even happening? How did you pitch this? <laughs> because you couldn't even, I was trying to think, could I even have told my thesis advisor that this would be something that they could understand? And I don't know if I could articulate that. Well, I I pitched it as, the thing I said was like, I just want to make a show about what it means to be a good person. That was really the, because that's a thing I think about a lot is like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Is it good? Is it bad? Should I be doing something better? And the actual pitch was, I want to do a show about what it means to be a good person. It happened to be set in the afterlife because in the afterlife you get fun of like magical, it's heaven or it's actually <laughs> secretly hell, but you get the fun of like people reflecting on their lives and, and people being thinking about judgment and thinking about like, why did they end up in heaven or hell or whatever? So that's the way I pitched it. When you phrase it like that, it doesn't seem so crazy. It seems the the setting seems a little crazy and the big twists and turns seem a little crazy, but the basic idea is not that different from like a lot of shows. It's just like an investigation of human behavior, I guess. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> now you can pitch it to right. your thesis advisor. But I was like, wow, <laughs> you guys did Parks and Rec and you worked on Office. And I was like, how do you make that literally a leap of faith into talking about the afterlife and theological arguments, yeah. morality, ethics? Yeah. And I was like, wow, these are all things that I wrestle with. <laughs> In your own life. Oh, yeah. I think the reason Alan talked to me about it, because he's like, you know, you study a lot of philosophy and religion. And I was a horrible student, but <laughs> I I try to apply a lot of those things weirdly into restaurants and how I cook and think about stuff. So for a network show to be produced on these existential questions, I was like, what is happening? Yeah, it's kind of like retroactively now, it seems more impossible than it seemed at the time. Like I, I think when I was doing it, when I was starting it, I was kind of like, you know, it doesn't seem that crazy. It's like the afterlife, there's been stuff set in the afterlife before, right? I'm not the first person to ever do that. And I got Ted Danson and Kristen Bell on board. And when you do that, studios tend to leave you alone because they're like, well, yeah, do whatever you want if you get those two. And then <laughs> I, I did say, there was one thing that I, I kind of cringe about because I said, when I pitched NBC the show, I said, look, we're going to talk about moral philosophy. And I promise, like, it's going to be talked about in a way that is accessible. Because I think the basic, like, one-liners of moral philosophy books or theories are pretty accessible. It's like, Kant says you should do things that you would will everyone to do. That's pretty easy. That's a inversion of the golden rule or something, right? It's like, everybody can understand that. So I was like, I, I'm going to discuss this stuff at a level that everyone can understand. In part, by the way, because I didn't study in college or anything. So I didn't really understand it. So... It's not going to be super arcane. And at one point I said to them, I promise I won't make it seem like homework. And then in the like second episode, 
the character Chidi is like standing at a blackboard and it says like philosophy 101. And I was like, oh boy, it kind of seems like homework. Uh, but I, I think the key to it is like, if you boil stuff down to a sort of what I think of as like a Wikipedia level, anyone who's interested can understand it. The books themselves are miserably hard to read, I find. I don't know. Did you actually study, did you major in philosophy in college? I was a religion major. Okay. It was really the philosophy of religion, why people are religious. Okay. Because I grew up in a very religious household and I wanted to- Whereabouts? In uh, Northern Virginia. Okay. But my parents and family were giant Presbyterians, a lot of ministers and missionaries in my life. And uh, Presbyterianism, that's interesting. I don't think of Presbyterianism as super hardcore. For a Korean version, a Korean immigrant version, I think, yes. And um, yeah, I just studied a lot of the stuff. And I think one of the reasons I did terribly in these classes, even though I still remember a lot of it, was it's horribly written. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. So bad. Yeah, it's so hard to understand. I don't think I've gotten all the way through any of the books that we've talked about on the show. Because at some point you just feel like, why am I doing this to myself? It's like, it, I'm, it feels like you're getting beat up. It feels like you're getting physically assaulted by right. the words. <laughs> and you're an incredibly smart guy. But I, I, I was like, wow, how did he actually nail all these points in? It's like the perfect Trojan horse to talk about very important issues, particularly yeah. in the past, like 2019, past couple of years. Yeah. Well, that was one of the craziest things about doing a show about ethics is that this was, the show was conceived in 2015, 2016. And then suddenly the word ethics was literally appearing on the front page of the New York Times every day. For some reason, somebody was doing something terrible to the concept of ethics. And so that was a complete coincidence. I didn't, it was not intended to be a timely kind of meditation. And then we elected someone as president who seemed like his singular goal was to assault the concept of ethics. And so in a weird way, I think that helped us because it was like, it was just in the air. Like people were breathing in the word ethics all the time and kind of discussing it all the time. And I, th- I really do feel like that was like a weird bridge between what we were trying to talk about and what was happening, which I didn't anticipate at all. Like I, I thought we were doing something completely in the dark, which was fine. I didn't care, but I definitely think that the, just the constant drumbeat of like, here's what this person is doing. Here's what his administration is doing. Did cause people to think about ethics in a way that they maybe hadn't before. I don't know. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm friends with a lot of comedians and hopefully I'm friends with them because like they're trying to do good subversive work. Right. And I think the comedy and what you're trying to do is probably one of the last places, the last stand, quite frankly, where you can make (laughs) comments and educate in a very different way. And I still can't believe it. Every time I watch an episode of The Good Place, I'm like, how how are they writing this (laughs) and getting people to internalize it and to talk about it? Well, the answer to your first question is partly that we have like we have philosophy advisors like on call. We have like a hotline that we are like, we don't understand this. And we pick up the phone and we call one of two or three people. Example. Um, so Todd May is a professor at Clemson and we came across him because he wrote a book called Death that was about death. And specifically it was about like what happens to you. Like what what is important about death in the world of ethics is that the fact of death means that our lives are finite because if your life is infinite, there's nothing compelling you to behave ethically, right? If it's like you rob a bank 
whatever, wait a billion years, the guilt will fade. <laughs> you know, like there's no, the fact of death is what causes our lives to have meaning. And then his point was morality is a, is a roadmap for how to like navigate the meaning of the finite life you have. So that was exactly what we were talking about, right? So we, so I, I sent him an email out of the blue and said, I read your book. I did read his book, by the way, his because it's like 90 pages long. <laughs> so like I Skyped with him and I asked him a bunch of questions and then he became our sort of main advisor and he comes in and gives us lectures about stuff and I write him emails. We send him scripts sometimes and he says like, this is a little iffy what you're saying here. There's a woman named Pamela Hieronymi who teaches at UCLA who is a disciple of this guy, Tim Scanlon, who wrote a book called What We Owe to Each Other, which has sort of become a fundamental book for the show. And she is local. And so I went and met with her and she's come in and talked about a bunch of stuff with us. So part of the answer to like how we write about this is we have very smart people who tell us how to write about it. Like who we, we figure out what areas interest us and then we run them by the people who actually teach this stuff. And they say, okay, here's, Here's what you're getting right. Here's what you're getting wrong. Here's some things to think about. Without those people, there's a guy named Joshua Green who teaches at Harvard, who's a who's a more of a scientist and a sort of is in halfway between science and philosophy. So without those people, I think it would be much harder to actually put the scripts together because we're able to write what we think is the right approach and then send it to them or run stuff by them. And then they gently correct us in a very nice way. And now with your better understanding of like a philosophy 101. I, I bet you're probably at philosophy 400 level class now. <laughs> Does it match up with some of your core beliefs and tenets that you felt about life and humanity? It kind of does. Yeah. I mean, I'm far from the 400 level. I would say I'm now at the like, maybe the 200 level. I'm maybe like a sophomore in college level. But me personally, I've always been an extreme rule follower. That's my from the time I was a kid, like I, this is not a joke in college. I had a great time in college. I loved it. But like, if the noise curfew was like 1am, like at 1.02am, if the party was still raging, I would start to get agita. And I would be like, I kind of need to, and I would like sneak over and like turn the music down. <laughs> Cause I didn't want, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want, and I, even if it wasn't my room, I like didn't want anyone to get in trouble. And I was like, the rule says one o'clock. So you got to kind of abide by the rule. I generally speaking, drive the speed limit on the highway. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't do anything. Uh, my wife made fun of me recently because when I use mouthwash at the end of the night, I do it for a really long time. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? And I was like, it says 30 seconds on the label. Like <laughs> it says you got to use, it says use it for 30 seconds. And she's like, they didn't know. They don't, they're just writing that so that you like get used to doing it for a lot. And I was like, well, maybe, but it's what it says. Like, I got to do what it says. I, and I've always been that way. So part of ethics, like part, a huge part of cheaty is me, of like the just, the kind of like, if this is the rule, you have to follow the rule. I've always been that way. I get made fun of for it a lot. It's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. So the kind of exploration of morality and ethics has, it's lined up with my personal beliefs in part because I unconsciously was already like, kind of like abiding by those rules. Now there's plenty of stuff I had never considered or, or thought about or anything. That's been really fun to like read about, you know, the, when you're a showrunner, you kind of split your personality and put a little bit of it into every character, you know? And there's a lot of me and Eleanor too, because when Eleanor reads philosophy, her reaction is like, 
this just <laughs> sucks. This is so boring. And that is my reaction when I read a lot of it of like, why can't you just tell me what you're trying to say? And there's an episode from season one where Chidi explains the basic concept of utilitarianism to her. And he's like, you do things that maximize good and that minimize bad. That's straight up. And she, and her reaction is like, this one's great. I love this one. This is simple. Let's just do this one. Forget all the other ones. And he's like, well, yeah, but it leads to a lot of problems. Like it means that you could like torture one person to save the lives, an innocent person to save the lives of five people or whatever. And she's like, God damn it. <laughs> you know? Cause it's like you, you find these theories and you want them to be right. And then someone comes along inevitably and says, well, here's why this one sucks. And you're like, yeah, all right, fine. Yes. This one also sucks. Like, so I, my personal journey on this has been to like get introduced to a bunch of stuff, fall in love with it, read the criticisms of it, realize the truth of the criticisms, and then feel like this is pointless. We're back at square one. I don't know what your life was like studying this stuff. I don't know if the philosophy of religion is the same thing, but like it is a maddening journey. It's a maddening course of study because every time you think you lock into something that you believe in, you then read like, oh, another philosopher came along two years later and refuted it with this good argument. And you're like, well, now I don't know what to do. Yes. And it is maddening. And which is why there was a period where I was trying to study the philosophers like Wittgenstein that were just trying to end philosophy. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> it's just like, this is so dumb. Yeah. We can't talk about this stuff <laughs> because it has no meaning. We don't even know what we're saying or what words are. Yeah. <laughs> And See, that stuff is too, that stuff is, forget it. I'm not even in the ballpark with that. You got to know a lot of math to do that too, right? Like logic and math. And, yeah. But it's very complicated and I'm not the one to talk to you about it. Right? <laughs> I was hoping you were. I was hoping Miller Brown, my it. professor would be very unhappy if I was going to tell the world about <laughs> logical positivism and shit like that. Um, no, wait, what did you mean when you said that you try to incorporate it into your cooking? That's very interesting to me. Well, before I want to get that, I wanted to ask you, because this will lead right into it. Okay. With your sort of journey and understanding philosophy and morality and ethics and all the different viewpoints and writers and books, are you at a place now where you're embracing, and I can sort of see this in the show, and I could be wrong, that you're embracing good old American pragmatism? <laughs> William James, John Dewey. Yeah, I mean, not explicitly, but the stuff that I tend to gravitate towards, I would say, is the stuff that's less abstract and more kind of achievable. Look, the people who love, the Pamela Hieronymi, our, our professor advisor, said, I was asking her a lot of questions about Kant. And she said, here's the thing with Kant. People who like Kant really like Kant. And I have found that to be true in that, like, he is an extremist. He's basically like, this is the way you have to live, and there are no exceptions, straight up. And anyone who tries to refute him, if you're a true believer in his worldview, and you try to refute him, you get, like, yelled at. The Kantians are just, like, they like him because he basically said, you can, this is doable. You can figure out an actual system, and the system will, will guide you every moment of your life. It's almost religious, right? It's like, it's if you just adopt my system, there will be an answer for how to behave at every moment. That's a very alluring idea. And it leaves me very cold because I just don't think it's possible. And then there's this guy, Jonathan Dancy, who is Hugh Dancy's dad, weirdly, the actor Hugh Dancy's dad. And he 
has a, a completely different theory, which is basically there's no system. You have to just evaluate the exact situation you're in and make a, deter- a moral determination based on the exact situation you're in. There's literally no overarching system that you can apply to your behavior. So we run the gamut. Like there's every possible theory about this and it starts to get exhausting. And the stuff that I personally am drawn to and I think that the show is drawn to is, you know what's important is if you're trying. Like Mm. if you're just trying to be a good person, if that's at the front of your brain all the time where you're just asking yourself, am I doing okay Am I hurting other people or am I helping other people? Am I generally doing things that are good or bad? Could I be improving somehow? Like if you're just asking yourself the questions, that's kind of the key to me at this point. So I'm not sure it's quite like American pragmatism per se, but it's something in that area. It's the show's overarching feeling is it is asking too much of people to wholesale adopt some kind of complicated philosophy that guides their every moral action at every waking moment of every day. But it's not too big an ask to say, hey, just kind of think about what you're doing. <laughs> just don't be oblivious to the people around you. Have empathy. Think about other people's circumstances in life. Don't only do things that benefit yourself. Try to keep other people in mind. That If you can do that stuff— to me, that's 90% of the battle. And I think that if you look at any situation in America, especially right now, and you just applied that philosophy, if everyone applied that philosophy to his or her own behavior, I think a lot of stuff would get a lot better. So that's where we've sort of ended up, is the the trying is almost as important as the doing. Because the trying means you're constantly evaluating and constantly thinking about what you're doing and wondering if you could be doing better. That's sort of where we've ended up. And I feel like where you, what you just spoke about has like this sort of string theory through all these great religions and philosophies about where you want to be, which in my opinion, when you say try to be good, I've always interpreted it as be selfless. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think sublimate your own wills and desires for personal happiness or gain to other people's. And that doesn't mean like you have to be a a monk, a miserable monk who doesn't eat or drink or whatever. It just means that your primary focus shouldn't be selfishness. It's why Ayn Rand is so annoying, (laughs) right? It's like, and why the people who were disciples of Ayn Rand believe that they have like discovered this weird truth about the universe where it's a deal that's too good to be true, right? Right. It's like, if I pursue my own self-interests, everything will actually get better. The world will be a better place. It's a very alluring idea. It's not different from like the what has been the centerpiece of the Republican tax code over the last however many decades, which is, no, if we cut rich people's taxes, then poor people have get more money. They offer you a deal that's too good to be true, and there's a reason it's too good to be true. It's because it's not true. They've tried it a million times, and it never works. And the same is true with this sort of cult of selfishness that Ayn Rand proposes, it's like, no, if you only pursue your own interests, the world will get better. That's just not the case, man. It's just not. Like, I don't know how else we can prove it, but- It's so counterintuitive, though. That's what makes it hard to see. It's what makes it hard to see, and it's what makes it alluring. I think it's like, wait a second. If I try to, like, destroy everyone in my path and become as rich as possible, the world will get better? Like, why not do that then? Like, and the answer is because it's bullshit. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, like I, 
selflessness is kind of the key. And that, again, it's like you can't ask people to become monks. You can't ask people to shed all of their worldly possessions and give every— There there are people who do this, by the way. There's So this guy, Peter Singer, do you know Peter Singer? He's arguably the world's most famous current philosopher. He's Australian, and he's a hardcore uh, consequentialist utilitarian. And he basically calculated a number— of how much money it takes to live like a decent life in the world, in a, in a Western uh, world. And it's he calculates like rent and clothes and food and entertain a small amount of entertainment, a small amount of savings and a car and whatever. And that number is whatever, $51,865. And he basically says, every dime that you make that's more than that, you are morally required to give to someone who has less than that. Straight up. No exceptions. Like, so... That's just how he lives. And it's, you know, the number changes based on inflation and the number changes if you have, if you're married and if you have children and whatever, but it's like, he's an uncompromising. He just says like, if you have more than that, you got to give it away. And that's asking too much. I think, you know, it's fascinating. And it leads to some fascinating conclusions. Like, you know, um, he's a very controversial guy. There have been a lot of, there's plenty of written about him. You can go read about him. He has some very controversial opinions that have gotten him in some trouble, but he also has some really interesting writing that is fascinating. So I think that is, that's the extreme again, right? You can't ask people to do that. It's unrealistic. But what you can ask people to do is to say, hey, if you have a good life, if you're comfortable, if you aren't in danger, if you're not in mortal peril, if you have shelter and food and clothing and you are happy and you're successful, you should think about how you can help other people. You should think about it all the time. You should do it when you can. If you're giving a hundred bucks to a charity that helps disadvantaged kids and you can give 200 bucks, maybe give 200 bucks. Like you should just be asking, this is the trying thing I'm talking about. You should just be asking those questions all the time, even if you're not following through all the time. Because Lord knows I don't. Like I, my worldview has shifted since I started this show and I've done different things in my life. And look, this is the conclusion I've come to. Tell me if you agree. If you set out to try to live a moral life, you have to be comfortable with the idea that you're going to fail. You fail every day. Like you make decisions every day that are bad. And there's nothing you can do. And that might be, you know what? I want to go, I really want to go to a, a baseball game with my friend. Uh, we're going to meet in uh, Denver. And that sounds really fun. So I want to do that. Well, what are you doing? You're buying a ticket on an uh, airplane and the company, the airline company might be a terrible company that supports terrible political stances you don't agree with. And then you're burning jet fuel as you fly through the air and you're contributing to global warning and you're buying a, you're getting a room in a hotel and the hotel chain might be terrible mm-hmm. and they might be anti-gay or anti-woman or whatever. So just by doing a thing that you want to do with your friend, you might be in 50 different ways failing as a moral agent in the universe. You just have to be okay with that because you can't ask people to not do anything. <laughs> you can't ask people to just live in like a monk and give all of their money to charity. You have, people have to live their lives. And so as long as you're okay with failing all the time in terms of how to be a moral agent in the universe, and you're okay with it because you're thinking about it and you're trying to get better and you're trying to be a little better today than you were yesterday, then that's, I think, all we can ask of people. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. 
Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. And if you're in the restaurant industry, ZipRecruiter.com is a fantastic resource. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Square. Paying your employees is an important part of running a business. With Square Payroll, businesses can pay their W-2 employees and 1099 contractors online in just a few clicks. Square Payroll is built for flexibility, so whether you're running payroll for the first time or switching from another provider, they've got you covered. Man, I wish when I started Momofuku in 2004, there was such a thing as Square Payroll because it would have made my life so much easier because doing payroll was the bane of my existence. So many bits of information you sort of need to piece together and then if you get it wrong it's a total nightmare and you just ruin your week and your employees week because nothing gets worse than not getting paid so seamlessly importing time cards from the square point of sale app or other time card partners instead of having to add hours manually saves so much time square payroll even helps calculate and pay out credit card tips They also take care of all annual and quarterly payroll tax withholdings, payments, and filings at no extra cost. Getting started is easy. Just enter your company's basic info, add your team members' information, and Square Payroll will handle the rest. Their fair and flexible pricing scales with your business. Square Payroll costs just $29 a month, plus $5 per employee per month. Square Payroll also offers benefits like health insurance, 401k, workers' comp, and pre-tax spending. Visit square.com forward slash go forward slash Chang to get three free months of Square Payroll. That's square.com slash go slash Chang for three months free. And now back to the show. I have so many things to think about and talk (laughs) about because everything you're talking about is literally what I struggle with. And professionally or personally? Both. Okay. when you say about trying to be good and the act of being selfless, I personally now believe that the only way to get your personal goals is to get it aligned by helping everyone else get theirs. And when I look at your show and I think about your show, what it really wrestles with is the concept of free will. And this is how I can segue to the culinary universe I can't motivate a cook with a giant stock option or eternal life or money. I have to motivate him or her with the goal that by getting better at their job, they're going to have personal integrity and the idea that on their own volition, they want to do a job better, which is ultimately harder and more difficult. And they have to take pride in that. And no one can take that away. But to get them to understand that is so hard. 
And I've learned over the years that effectively, if I'm their parent or, you know, the authority figure, I've been every kind of person. And I view free will to now I'm a new new father to what I believe is like, there's got to be some parallel to great governance of a nation state, of a religious group, to a company, to a restaurant, to being a showrunner. The hardest part is being present enough, knowing when to intervene and when not to intervene and to give them the option on their own volition to make, hopefully, create a sandbox or a constitution that we work together, but they are left to their own device to make more right decisions than wrong. I can only hope that they make more right decisions than wrong. If I force them against their will, I create essentially, effectively, a totalitarian state (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's very effective in the short term. I see this in kitchens all the time where I can get everyone to do what they want to do. Right. But when my back is turned, they are only doing it out of fear. And they don't really believe anything that I'm trying to tell them. They just are going to do enough so they don't get in trouble. Alternatively, if it's total free-for-all and it's anarchy, nothing gets done. Right. There's a lot of free-flowing ideas, but... You've probably seen this in writers' rooms too. It's, but like you're not getting to the goal because no one wants to be the bad cop. So I've now just internalized all these things that you've been talking about, things that I've studied, and I feel that maybe there's a better version. But the only thing that I can do is to be present for my employees, knowing that I'm going to fail. But that idea of free will is the only thing that I can encourage them to do. And that's the hardest thing to do because— if I make decisions for them, I'm effectively Lori Laughlin. <laughs> which, which is, if you ask Lori Laughlin, and I've been, I've been thinking about her so much. Really? Oh, all the time. And I explain this to my cooks, and they're like, what are you talking about? Because they don't even know. Aunt Becky? They're like, what? And I, they say, you bear with me here. If you ask her, if the judge is going to ask her, why did you do this? Why did you pay for your daughter? Why did you cheat for your daughter? She's probably going to say, what do you think? Because I wanted wanted the best for her. She's all I care about in the world, and I just wanted her to have the best life she could have. I love her with all my heart. Yeah. I think the actuality is she's fooled herself. She loves herself, and she actually wants it easier for herself. Because the hardest thing for her to do is to let her daughter fail, to be a present parent, to have the conversation. Maybe you're not going to college because that's embarrassing for Lori and blah, blah, blah. The hardest thing to do was to let her daughter fail. Mm -hmm. So she really doesn't love her daughter. She loves herself first. That's an interesting way to think of it. I hadn't thought of it quite like self-love getting in the way of other-directed love. That's probably true or theoretically true. I think there's a, like... I've had this conversation with my friends a lot recently who are parents because I have two kids. My kids are 11 and eight. And we have this conversation all the time, which amounts to saying there's like a weird trap that you fall into as a parent. And I think the same is true as being a boss. I think the same is true of a lot of things. Anytime you're sort of at the head of like an organization, right? And the problem is, is like your goal, especially with your kids, is to, you love them and you want to minimize their pain that they have in the universe. And so you do everything you can to minimize their pain. Anything you can think of, you know, there's actual pain, which is like keeping them safe from, you know, on the playground and stuff and like putting band-aids on their scrapes to like 
talking to other parents when there's like a conflict in with like another kid on the, you know, at school or whatever, anything, psychological pain, emotional pain, any kind of pain. If you do it too much, you give them a false read on the universe. Because if you do it too much and they have a perfect effortless life, and then you send them away at 18 or 19 to go to college or something, they're in for a world of crap, man. Like they, if they haven't experienced massive setbacks in their lives and failures and, and gotten beaten up a little bit, what do you do? Then you're failing as a parent. Ironically, reducing your children's pain to nothing is the worst thing you can do as a parent. We're saying the same thing. Right, exactly. And I'm telling you that when I saw Michael try to help Eleanor, Chidi, and everyone else get to the good place. He was basically being Lori Laughlin. <laughs> and he's yeah. learned, oh man, this doesn't work. Yeah. Yes. What works is slug it out. Let the bumps and bruises teach you things as you, as you move along. And, you know, my son plays baseball and his team lost his league division championship game a couple weeks ago in extra innings, terrible, sad, walk-off loss, right? I was happy about it because he's had a lot of success in sports. He plays basketball. He plays baseball. Like, these teams don't always win. In fact, he's on, a, he's on like a club team that gets beaten up a lot. But the rest of his life is pretty great. <laughs> you know, he's a rich white kid in LA. Like, he's, he's doing great. And they lost, and it was heartbreaking, and he was really bummed out. And I was quietly kind of happy. Like, you need to understand that the world doesn't always line up for you. The world is lining up for him. He doesn't understand this yet, but the world is lining up for him to a degree that it lines up for very few human beings on earth. He just is. He's in a Western industrialized city that, by the way, is full of diversity and richness, and there are mountains, and there's natural beauty, and there's human beauty. He lives in a really nice house. He has essentially whatever he wants to within reason. And so, yeah, he's got to lose. This kid needs to lose. In fact, um, I was emotionally rooting for him and intellectually rooting against him in some weird way because he's 11. That's not three. 11 is like he's, a, he's forming his worldview. And I really need him to lose a little bit. And I don't want him to lose in a way that's, that makes him miserable. But a baseball loss that sits with you for 48 hours and then eventually you get over it, that's exactly the kind of thing everybody needs to go through, I think. But you just gave an incredibly enlightened, I think, perfect model of being a good parent, right? It's being present, which is balance. Yeah, yeah. Some parents, I could imagine, would see their child heartbroken and be like, okay, we have to play lesser competition. <laughs> get this kid some easy wins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's not, he, look, he's done plenty of losing athletically. So it's not like he, it's not like he's, he was sailing to, uh, you know, a career in the majors or anything. But I think that the, the number of opportunities you have to have your kid take an L in a way that is instructive and not emotionally damaging, there aren't that many, like, some of them are going to come naturally. He's going to fall in love with someone at some point, and that person is not going to love him back. That happens to everyone. It'll be crushing. That's fine, but I can't control that. Like mm -hmm. this, and I, it's not that I could control this, this thing either, but I, what I could control is the discussion of it afterwards and the kind of like, let's put this in perspective and here's what we can take from this and here's what you, can, you should be proud of and all that sort of stuff. The debrief. 
after you take an L is the important part to me. I don't know. How old you? You have a 41. young one. Yeah, I just had my first uh, son. My wife did. I, I, I was just there. <laughs> How old is he? He's a little over three months now. Okay. And it has been everything I thought it was going to be and more simply because he's the purest he's ever going to be at this moment. That's probably true. Right. And everything is an honest, unconditional reaction. <laughs> and that's really been screwing me up in a good way because it's like, oh, there are platonic ideals out there that are true. Yeah. That are immutable. And that's been really important for me because like I have to live in a world of ideas because that's ultimately why I got into cooking, believe it or not. <laughs> not because I like to cook. I was like, it's an honest profession. Interesting. Right. The honesty was what drew you to it. You can get better through work and failure. And no matter how bad you are, you can always get better. And because it's a literally a craft. And because at the time it was so wildly unpopular. It, it was unpopular? Oh what do you mean? God, no one wanted to cook in 2000, 1999. Because everyone was going to Silicon Valley. And it was whatever. literally the dumbest job you could possibly do. <laughs> Especially if you had the upbringing that I had. It was like, what are you doing, dude? Well, you must have been interested in it before you went to culinary school. I was, and I grew up in it, but it wasn't something that I thought was going to uh, be my life. And... I think a lot of it is because of everything that you were talking about is I had a real existential crisis at an early age. I think right out of college or during college, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Sure. And I'm not even smart enough or have the grades to get the kinds of jobs that would give me a large income. So I'm just going to do whatever. And I think I really grew because I embraced failing. So the failure was a feature, not a bug for you of cooking. The failure was like a, an attractive quality. I learned that the more I fucked up, the more advantages I would have over everyone else. Interesting. And that most people don't want to fail because it hurts. Yeah. Right? It just hurts. It's counterintuitive. Again, yeah. the default setting as a human is somewhere in our DNA is like, we are pleasure machines. We want to feel good. Right. But feeling good does not make you grow as a person. Right. Because you need resistance, as we've spoken about. So... I was really just lost trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And I'm not even joking. I got into cooking because uh, there was a class, Western um, beginnings of the Christian church or whatever. I can't remember the class. <laughs> Frank Kirkpatrick, I got like C plus in it. And I've used this idea. The theolo early Christian theologians used a principle called via negativa, which was the negative way because God was ineffable. You could not describe God. So, we can now talk and meditate years on end about what God is not. And in theory, that should get us closer to what God is. Sure. And just meditating forever and ever. It's that thing of like Michelangelo saying that he carved the David by cutting away everything that wasn't the David. Right. Right. It just, it's a beautiful thought. And I was like, man, if it worked for them, maybe that's what I want to do. So I'm going to try a bunch of things that I want to do. Okay. And see what I like and what I don't like until I get a little bit closer to what I want to do. I had no intention that cooking was going to be it. What, was, what else did you try? Oh, I taught English. I was in, worked in financial services for a little bit. <laughs> worked as a stock boy, uh, bar back, uh, busser, repair golf clubs. <laughs> worked at a, as a hotel clerk. You repaired golf oh, clubs? Oh, yeah, because I played competitive golf as a kid. I did okay. a lot of golf. All right, that didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. 
I did a lot of you weird like, jobs. You were zeroing in on the food industry. It was like bar bag, <laughs> bus boy, and then <laughs> took a left turn into repaired golf clubs. All I knew is maybe this is something I might want to do. So did it work? Did Via Negativo work Well, for you? For the first time when I started getting into it, as scary and terrible as I was, like a year later, I was like, I don't think I took a day off. I'm beginning to love what I do. Interesting. But loving what I do, I had the idea that it had to be 100%. I love it. What I've learned is loving is a constant battle between 49 and 51%. That's right. Yeah. Loving it means a lot of hating it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's pretty much how I got into cooking was like, maybe this is something I want to do. And then I learned that, oh, this is like a completely different thing. I can be a total class clown, yet I simultaneously have to be very serious to make this food. It's, it's this mixture of a variety of different fields. And what I've really come after 20, almost 20 years being in the business, it's now aligned with something I really wrestled with in college was this sort of the Camus, Sartre, existential dilemma. What you were sort of talking about at the beginning of this podcast is like the meaning of what you do in a meaningless world, right? Yeah. And I was like, maybe, and I've been talking more and more about it. And a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Because here's another horrible book by uh, author, philosopher that won a Nobel Prize was Albert Camus. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a horrible writer of nonfiction, <laughs> right? Like I haven't read any of his stuff in French, but whatever. It's like the myth of Sisyphus is a horrible book. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible. You book. mean it's poorly written or the message you don't agree with? It's a poorly with? written book because exactly as you say, all you need to do is read the first chapter and the last chapter yeah. ultimately. And I wrestle with this because I could never understand why someone would want to push a boulder up the hill as a metaphor for life, because it starts off with a very famous like line. It's like the only philosophical problem is suicide. And you're like, wow, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> but then when you study it, it's not really about that. He's basically saying two things. One is if once you understand the meaningless existence of life, you can kill, literally physically kill yourself. Right. You have three options, right? You can, yeah. Or you can sort of existentially commit suicide by giving into a religion having a meaningless job, right. just doing nothing. Imbuing something meaningless with meaning is your, is your second. That's philosophical suicide, yeah. And the third thing, which I feel a little bit what your show is getting at more, is understanding the absurdity of all the options. The only real true choice you have is to reject your default setting and to get better through failure. And I was like, man, I actually feel like the good place could just be a kitchen. <laughs> at a restaurant. <laughs> and you see these cast of characters that are all, all of them sort of overlap with some of your people that you, you know, write. And I was like, man, and I watched that show. I was like, this is basically every kitchen I've ever worked in. You're doing drudgery, repetition every day. And every day it repeats itself, sort of like the myth of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. where you're like, wait, I'm going to spend all day, get paid nothing, work my ass off to make something beautiful that someone's ultimately going to shit out eight hours later. <laughs> It is a very good metaphor for meaninglessness, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It is. I have really thought about this. I think it's actually the dumbest job in the whole world. <laughs> really. <laughs> and I mean this truthfully, because if you think about it, wait, I'm going to enter a profession that pays me very little. Sure. That also as a business has one of, if not the lowest margins of profit. Right. 
Also, Fa- famously, f- everything fails, right? 99% failure rate in like right. the first five years. Right. <laughs> On top of it all, if that didn't even scare you away, I'm, as a business, I'm in a byproduct that rots. Right. And to sell it, I need, under best case conditions, I need to have artistry, craftsmanship, marketing, all of this stuff. Yep. It's almost impossible to make it happen. And then every day, no one's going to remember what the hell happened the day before. <laughs> it's literally very, very bleak, a very bleak way to f- summarize your career. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I, and that's why I was like, man, what have I been doing? Why are we doing this? Well, look, it, this is what I would say. Okay, I would say a couple things. First of all, the last line of the myth of Sisyphus is one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Correct. And the reason is, is by like, by just confronting the absurdity of what he's doing and by just continuing to do it, but knowing that it's absurd, he suggests, Camus suggests that Sisyphus comes all the way around and is like, oh, wait a second. This is, uh, this is everything else is meaningless too. So this meaning, at least I know what this is. At least I know how to do this. I know I'm roll this rock up the hill. It's going to roll back down. And I'll go get it. So that's the happiness that comes from understanding the thing you're doing. That's the first thing. The second thing is, that is an amazing attack on your profession that you've just laid out. But I could do the same thing for writing. I could say, you meet in a room with a bunch of people, you pitch a million ideas for fictional characters. There's a 99% failure rate in writing too. 99% of the stuff you pitch is bad and you throw it away and you never think about it again. You pick one idea then that's good. You struggle and you knead it like dough and you tear it apart and it parts of it rot and you have to throw them away and get new parts. And eventually you figure something out and you rewrite it and you rewrite it and you rewrite it, you read through and then you rewrite it again and then you shoot it and then you edit it and then you air it and it's gone. And it's like thousands and thousands of man and woman hours poured into 21 minutes and 30 seconds of entertainment that most people will watch while they're looking at their phones or, or like cooking dinner or whatever. Like if you're incredibly lucky, and I have been in some cases, shows will endure, that people will come up to you and say, that thing you did 10 years ago, I love that. That was meaningful to me. But I would also argue that I'm not a foodie I would say. I don't know if Alan told you that, Alan Yang, mutual friend Alan Yang, but I got made fun of because in, in the Parks and Rec room and in other rooms I've been in, a lot there are a lot of people who care very, very, very deeply about food. I like food. I like going to good restaurants, but I'm not a person who has a sophisticated palate at all. However, I remember specific meals I had 10, 20 years later. I remember being in Paris with my wife on her honeymoon. I remember being in Venice with my wife and eating a piece of fish that I I can taste it to this day. So I would actually argue that it's not that different, that what you're talking about, the absurdity of your profession, the absurdity of my profession, most of what you do is failure. Most of what, like, you know, by the time an episode of TV gets to the screen or a meal gets to a, a, a table, those finished products have attached to them spiritually and almost tangibly thousands of hours of failure behind them. But that's what makes them so fun. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. They're experts in acoustics and in engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. 
Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I am so happy with my Sonos. I've had it in almost every apartment and house that I've had over the past sort of six, seven years. And one of the reasons I do it is because I can install it. I don't need to hire anyone. And I love installing something because I'm usually terrible at installing it. And as I watch sports, I can have surround sound or I can turn it to Sonos and I can play baby tunes for Hugo or I can turn it back to Sonos on my TV when I'm watching a sci-fi flick and I can get surround sound and I can move around the speakers when I need to. It's just very easy and it's very fun and I just love that because it enhances my sort of TV watching experience or when I want to listen to music. It's fantastic. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. I love Sonos. Highly encourage you guys to check it out. It's very, very easy to install and it will only enrich your listening experience. And now back to the show. So how do you explain? Because there definitely will be a parallel here, no <laughs> doubt. Why do you do and why do you try so hard to make excellent work then? Well, Okay, there's boring answers to that question and there's slightly more interesting answers. I'll, I'll, I'll give you both. The boring answer is it's really fun and it pays money. And I've realized in my early 20s that I had a knack for it or at least had the potential to have a knack for it. I got very lucky in that I met the right people at the right time who helped me develop that ability. And it's very fun and interesting and it's a good life. I don't, ever lack for creative outlet. I have, my wife is also a writer. She does exactly what I do. And we talk all the time about how like our lives are a continual process of like our souls flourishing in some way, right? It's, we never have the feeling, even at it's most, um, when it's the most like drudge filled, you don't feel like it's work. Uh, it feels frustrating and it feels annoying sometimes. And it feels, you know, you can feel like you're running in place or rolling a boulder up a hill, but it never feels like work really. Uh, and that's a rare thing. How many jobs are there? Like professional athlete maybe, but even them, they, I think they probably feel like when they're like <laughs> in the gym for the fourth hour a day or whatever. So that's the boring reason. I think the slightly more interesting reason that's occurred to me is the process of being alive on earth is, to me at least, is the process of like failure and learning and adjustment. So you, you try something and whatever that thing is, you try a relationship, a personal relationship, or you try a, um, you know, you try living in a city to see if that's where you want to live or whatever. And then if it fails, you go, all right, well, here's what I think was good and here's what I think is bad and I'm going to adjust storytelling or writing, especially in TV, allows you to fail and adjust and then hopefully succeed publicly, which is really interesting. My own thought processes and my own emotional processes of how I view the world and what I've taken in and how I've failed and adjusted and then tried to succeed, I can actually play out dramatically. Mm. I can have characters give voice to the things that I think 
I can have them experience my own failures and, and adjustments and successes. And it's incredibly therapeutic. Like I, when I was in New York, I started at SNL. I moved to New York after college and I started at SNL. And I was at SNL for two years and I was terrible. I was absolutely terrible at my job. I was terrified every day of my life because I was in over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. I saw people around me succeeding effortlessly. Adam McKay was the head writer and Adam McKay would roll in at like three in the afternoon and say like, uh, here, I got seven sketch ideas <laughs> and they would just fly out of his head and he would write all of them and they would all be so funny. And, and even the ones that didn't make it to the show were like a thousand times better than anything I had ever conceived of. And I was walking to work one day and I was 23 years old and I was walking to work. I stopped at the same Dunkin' Donuts every day. I walked down 50th street. I walked toward 30 Rockefeller center and I was crossing the street heading into work. And I went, a thought popped into my head and it was, oh my God, I hate my job. Hmm. And it had never occurred to me that that might be true because I was 20, I got hired when I was 21. I was 23 at the time. And I worked at Saturday Night Live with Will Ferrell and Jimmy Fallon and Tina Fey and Lauren Michaels and all of these people. And I, every day I went to work and I was with the funniest people in the world. And it just never occurred to me that I might not be happy because how could you not be happy? And I... I suddenly was like, oh my God, I hate this. And as soon as I said that to myself, and as soon as I articulated it, I got a million times better at the job. I suddenly stopped thinking of it as a thing that I, that I was supposed to like, or that like there was something wrong with me or something. I don't know what it was. I don't even, I can't even untangle it. But literally starting from that day, I was like, oh, a weight is off my shoulders. And now I can just like do this. And if I hadn't had that revelation, by the way, I was in therapy at the time, which is probably what helped. But if I hadn't had that revelation, I don't know what would have, I don't know mm. if I'd still be writing. It was this moment of clarity that helped just like opened up the blood vessels or something or opened up my brain. And from that moment on, it became like, oh, I know why I write now, not just because it's fun and I'm with funny people and because it pays well or whatever, but because it's a way to like, express how what you're going through on earth and you can make I mean I you can't really do it at SNL SNL is just sketches but starting when I moved out here it was like you get to like talk about your own life or your own observations through other people who were funny intelligentic and that's that process is like ongoing I mean this is, sounds really corny to say but it's like an ongoing emotional therapeutic process for me and it's not, I don't have massive demons. I don't have addiction problems. I don't have, like, I haven't been abused in my life. I've led a pretty good, comfortable life. And there are other people for who do, and they, it's really therapeutic for them. My therapy with writing is just, I'm trying to untangle stuff I observe and think about in the universe. And I get to do it on screen through other people. And that is incredibly enjoyable and meaningful to me because I don't know what the option is. The option, if I weren't writing, I think I would be boring people to death at cocktail parties. <laughs> like I would just be cornering people and saying like, have you read this Jonathan Dancy book? And people, no one would want to hang out with me. <laughs> I would. Do you think, and I, I, do you think that when you had that epiphany about sort of understanding the status quo in your life and then embracing work, you think it was because you had this almost perfect ideal of a job you're working for Saturday Night Live. You're hanging out with all of these amazing, talented people. You should, in theory, have 
happiness. Yeah. But that's just a marketing mirage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In my opinion, I could be totally wrong, but this is how I think about stuff. You had an understanding of what happiness was because that was doing the work. It was like rebelling against what everyone else was thinking. And you started being like, I got to do what I got to do. And it was the work itself, as painful and drudgery as it might be, that you're like, wait, how am I supposed to find failure and growing and pain as happiness? Does that make any sense? Yeah, I definitely think that was a part of it. I think that the the other part of it was the hardest thing for me to do, and I think for a lot of people to do, is to admit that you're scared. It's very, very hard for people to admit they're wrong and to admit that they're scared. And what I think- Why is that? Because it's embarrassing. No one wants to feel embarrassed. Everybody wants to feel like they've they're in control and they're to, everything's fine. And I mean, that's what that's what scared is to me. But that's failing too, right? Yeah, because it hurts. Absolutely, because it, it hurts and it's vulnerable. And you're you're saying like, help me, please, someone help me. I think the part of it where you you don't want to admit you're wrong is more pure. Um, it's like shame and embarrassment, which is like it is remarkable the lengths that some people will go to to avoid saying, "Oh, sorry, I was wrong. I blew it." Hmm. Like. If I could take one ability, like superhero ability, and place it permanently in the minds and souls of all living human beings in an attempt to make the world a better place, it would be that. I would literally give people the embarrassment-free ability to just say like, oh, sorry, I was wrong. But don't you no think- No one that, ever wants to say that. But isn't embarrassing not just a human emotion? I think people don't want to feel embarrassment because it hurts. Yes, it's painful. Absolutely. It, you're saying like, I made a mistake. I'm, I was incompetent in that moment, whatever it was. So for me, what you said is right and, and true. But also for me, I think being 23 and working at that job, I think I was just scared. I think it was pure fear. I was just f- afraid of admitting- that I wasn't happy or that I didn't know what I was doing or whatever. I was obsessed with being cool. I mean, cool is the enemy of, of yeah. everything. Being cool is like, or feeling cool is gets more people into more trouble than any other single thing. I was trying so hard to be cool, to like be like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. This is whatever. This is stupid. Uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it's like, I was, and I sucked. I like really did suck at the job. And when I admitted to myself that I was scared and afraid and vulnerable and unhappy and that there was something wrong. It wasn't like, it wasn't SNL's fault. It was my fault. Like I was the one who was approaching it entirely wrong. And so just being able to admit that vulnerability and that fear, I suddenly started to love the job because the job was just there. It's a, it's a silly job. It's like you write three minute sketches for people to act out at two in the morning or whatever on TV. So that's the job. It's not the job's fault. It was my fault because I was I was too obsessed with seeming cool or capable to admit that I was terrified and vulnerable. Yeah. And as soon as I did that, just to myself, it wasn't even to anyone else. It was just to myself. I was like, oh, now I can just approach this on its own terms and try to just write goofy things. And if they work, great. And if they don't, it's okay. What do you have to lose? The failure is okay. And like the, I mean, SNL is the reason a lot of wonderful people end up having gone through SNL as a system is because SNL destroys your ego. I mean, it destroys it. It's a live show. Even when you have the best week in the world and you write two or three sketches and a bunch of jokes and they all kill, they all destroy and you're on cloud nine 
you start over the next day with nothing and you write three more sketches and they suck and they bomb at the read through. I mean, I actually flop sweated so many times. I would start sweating through my through my hoodie because of how badly sketches I wrote were bombing. And I would think like, I'm going to get fired and this is terrible. But that's what I was thinking internally. Externally, I was going like, whatever, this show's stupid. Uh, no one gets it, uh, whatever, right? So- but and then I was like, oh no, the vulnerability, the fear is okay. It's okay to be, it's okay. It's all okay to have this reaction. You don't have to pretend that you're not freaked out. And so then from then on, if sketches bombed, I had this like, oh well, well, I tried. I'll try again next time. I'll try to do better. Like, and then when things were successful, and also by the way, you start, I started writing things that I just thought were funny instead of trying to game plan them and try to say, like, oh, here's what here's the kind of thing that worked last week, or here's, I'm going to try to game the system by doing this character who has a funny accent or whatever. I just started doing things I thought were funny. So if they failed, it was like, well, I thought it was funny. And if it succeeded, it felt like an actual mini triumph because it was like, I thought this was funny and I was right. And so I don't know how we got into this topic, but I honestly think that coolness is like the enemy of all creativity. I think if you if you're at all focused on trying to look cool or feel cool or like be over it or not care about anything and like be like you know detached and aloof and all that stuff, I think you're dead in the water creatively. And I the only way, I mean, if there's one thing that kind of unites all of the shows I've ever worked on is that those shows like people are happy exposing their emotional lives. They're happy being vulnerable. Leslie Nope on Parks and Rec wore her heart on her sleeve happily and proudly. And that's how Amy Poehler is in real life. And the same is true. And I mean, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Andy's character, Jake Peralta, like was obsessed with coolness, but the best moments of the show are the ones where he is vulnerable and he tells his wife or then girlfriend that he loves her and that he wants to be with her. And... Andre Brower's character, Captain Holt, is a openly gay police captain who has spent his whole life being persecuted for just who he is. And it's like a matter of incredible pride to him that he has now achieved the heights that he has achieved. And we're and we're doing that while we're telling incredibly silly stories. Like we're not trying to lecture anybody or like make everything too serious, but the heart of all of these characters has to be that they're vulnerable and they're in touch with their emotional lives because if they're not, then everything is steely and icy and it has no effect on anyone because it's just like a slick surface kind of nonsense, you know? It's really beautiful, man. <laughs> really? Sorry. I didn't mean to No, to, and it, I think it does make sense. Coolness is the enemy of failure. It really is. Because if you're cool, if you're obsessed with being cool, then you play off failure like it doesn't matter. And if you are, if you're vulnerable... You say like, I failed and that hurts and it really stings and I'm going to investigate it and I'm going to like, it's going to help me grow. And coolness is about brushing off failure and pretending it doesn't matter. And I, I think everybody or most people are obsessed with coolness for a long time. You just, you, because coolness is a shield that you wear to keep yourself from feeling pain in relationships and in your professional life and in soul social situations it's just a suit of armor that everybody puts on when they're like 13 or 14 and you wear it until hopefully, you know, at 23, you're like, oh, this suit of armor is heavy, man. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't move. I can't sleep. I can't think. Nothing is, 
no one really knows who I am because the, the, the face plate is down and you got to just throw it away. And it wasn't until I did that and I stopped caring whether anybody thought I was cool that I didn't, I didn't write a single good piece of comedy until I got rid of that suit of armor. Weirdly, you really just described how I feel about myself and a lot of things that I've gone through. Really? It's actually weird. <laughs> it's uncanny. Uh, and ultimately, too, to sort of wrap this all up, it's how I feel very strongly that as dumb as the culinary and cooking jobs are, it's simultaneously maybe the best job in the world. Yeah, of course you think that. You wouldn't be doing it if you didn't think that. Like, the job that I have is weird. The job that you have is weird. And there's a lot of other jobs that are weird or not weird. But at some level, if you have an emotional connection to it at all, I mean, we're the luckiest people in the world. I mean, there's so many jobs. It's an incredible luxury to care about what you do. Most people don't get that chance. Most people either have to take a job because they just need to eat and they need to provide shelter for themselves and their families, or their dad did the job and the dad made them go into that job or something, and they've never thought for two seconds about whether they even like that job. Now, that's not to say there aren't lawyers who are emotionally connected to being lawyers, because there sure are. And there are auto mechanics who are emotionally connected to being auto mechanics. The difference is, in terms of luck to me, is... If you have any job that you care about, that you emotionally care about, never leave it. It is, I think, an incredibly rare thing. So as dumb as, as the culinary world might be and as annoying and dumb as the entertainment world might be, and I'm sure that if you and I talked for another hour, we could find a lot more similarities of personality types and the shallowness and the obsession with success that people have and the misdirected motivations of the people who get into it and all that sort of stuff. But if you personally have an emotional connection to the thing you're doing, then you are one of the luckiest people in the world. That's what I think about myself all the time. Like I, the real reason of why I keep doing it is because I love it and because it feels like I'm enriching my soul. Even when I'm writing the dumbest jokes <laughs> for the dumbest characters, it still feels like it's something that means something to me. And that I just know how lucky I am that that's the case. And I, you know, sometimes I think about like Silicon Valley bros who were like, who were just like maximize profit. Like, are you, what are you getting out of this, man? What is in it for you? The weird obsession with just like status, money, fame, power, success, like whatever it is, that's not an emotional connection. That's like a, that's like a lizard brain thing where that I just do not understand. I don't understand how you let your lizard brain guide you in your whole life like that. And I think if I ever felt myself getting to that place, I would, I would shut it down. <laughs> Maybe become a chef. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all that. And, uh, an honor to talk to you. And I'm, completely shocked that we talked about any of this. <laughs> what did you think we were going to talk I about? I knew we were going to talk about it. I was like, man, I wonder what people are going to think of when they listen to this. I don't know. Right? <laughs> it's okay. We had fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that was my conversation with the great Mike Shore. Real honor that he came on our podcast. 
Can't believe we even had that kind of conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope you guys did as well. I don't know if Mike will ever get the, or not ever, he should get all the credit in the world for creating some of the great programs of our generation. I just love everything he does, and I love him even more knowing that he's such a fantastic, great person, a good person, and someone that's endlessly curious. So thanks again, Mike. Want to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. Please keep on sending them in. Jared Russell asks, just listened to and really enjoyed the second podcast with Josh Skeens. It made me wonder if I haven't appreciated some meals I've eaten at well-regarded restaurants because I didn't understand the subtlety with which they highlighted the ingredients. Do you have any ideas on how the average person can improve their knowledge of ingredient quality? If you haven't been exposed to it, how do you know an ingredient is an eight or nine instead of a five or a six? That is a great question, Jared. And, you know, we had that long rambling podcast with Josh, and it's something that I feel like we need to get better at, at talking about a chef's perspective. But it's a real dilemma. How do you talk about your ideas and what you're doing to a guest when all you want to do is make delicious food? But it's more complicated than that, and it's more than just food. And I think we're at a place in gastronomy where we're finally able to talk about it without sounding like a total douchebag. I will say that, Jared, the one thing that I can recommend to understanding not just ingredients, but culinary philosophy and just the work that's involved in making a great restaurant that's a little bit different than the mainstream is that you have to have an open mind. You have to be curious and you have to sort of constantly educate yourself. I eat everywhere and I still know I'm ignorant about a lot of foods. Like most foods, I actually don't know that much about, even though I think that I know something. Like it's the same thing when I tell younger cooks that are just starting out if they have great knife skills. Anyone that says they have great knife skills, they're fucked because there's always someone that's going to be better. And it's really important to come in with an open mind and an empty cup. And I mean that literally and figuratively. Like I love Clive Cussler and Tom Clancy and sort of easygoing highly entertaining novels of fiction, works of fiction that like I might read on a plane or on summer vacation or something like that. And guess what? A lot of people do because they're like the most widely read books. But it's important to read different kinds of things and to appreciate things that are a little bit out of your comfort zone. Like I've tried my life to appreciate James Joyce and not just a portrait of an artist at a young man, but like Ulysses. And it's a hard book because because you can read at one level, but honestly, there's like at least like four to five different ways to interpret the whole sort of story. There's just stream of consciousness. It's incredibly complex. And like, I don't even think Ulysses is is as hard as like, listen, I've read one page of Finnegan's Wake. It's like the most impossible book. And then I think of someone like Thomas Pynchon who wrote Mason Dixon. And I think that's like, Gravity's Rainbow also is a very hard book to read. Like, I'm not going to lie. I haven't finished these books. Mason Dixon is impossible to read. I'm not going to say it's illegible, but like they're writing it in like 17th century English. It's fucking hard. I don't know how he's done it, but like, listen, I'm not an expert in literature, but I'm not going to say that James Joyce or Thomas Pynchon, some people consider them like some of the great modern authors of the English language. I'm not going to say they suck. You know what I mean? Like some people that are much smarter than I think that Ulysses is like the greatest 
work of fiction or one of the great works of fiction of the past 100 years. Again, like I'm not an expert in literature and it's a very far-fetched claim to even make a comparison between the cooking of certain chefs and great literature, right? I I know that. So it's not a perfect analogy, but bear with me. There are media outlets and I won't name names, but they're pretending like they're on the consumer side, but they're actually doing a disservice to you treating you like you don't want to know more or you aren't willing to pay more for quality. And it's almost like a one-sided deal, like they're doing the work for you. But the reality is, I don't think they're doing the work at all. They're just treating you like you don't want to know more and you aren't willing to pay more for quality and that you're not curious. And I thought it was just sort of a fitting thing to sort of talk about the curiosity of Mike Shore and like have that same sort of know-how, even though Mike Shore is not a a gourmand as he's admitted, right? But like, he's still going to come to dinner with an open mind and you never know what's going to sort of like change your perspective on something. And I love being wrong that way. What I never want to do is eat someplace and expect it to be exactly what I thought it was going to be. Restaurants like Angler and Vespertine are really pushing Los Angeles forward. Los Angeles should be lucky to have these restaurants, two very, very different restaurants, Jordan Kahn at Vespertine and Josh doing sort of a second spin of what he's done at Angler San Francisco. I just find it impossible to not understand what they're trying to do. I mean, like, it just bothers me on a principle to to question the quality. Listen, you can have any kind of meal and maybe it was a bad meal. I don't know. And they're entitled to their own opinion. But I think there's a way to to be open to something and not to sort of disregard something completely. And Los Angeles is better for having these restaurants, even if it is in the Beverly Center, right? And I don't know if Vespertine gets enough credit. It really is unfucking believable that that restaurant exists. And it would be a huge shame if we looked back in 20 years and said, wow, those restaurants were ahead of their time. And I can think of a couple in New York City that, because they clones, fundamentally altered the trajectory of New York City dining for the worse. And I really believe that because people weren't open to it. And I think about Wiley Dufresne and WD-50 because, you know, I've talked about Wiley a bunch over the years. He's one of my mentors. He's one of my good friends. And, you know, he started off after leaving John George opening 71 Clinton Fresh Food. And really, quite frankly, the reason why, one of the main reasons why the Lower East Side developed at all was because of this little restaurant that turned into WD-50. And I mean, it's been closed for, you know, three, four years now, but when it first opened up, I can tell you that it was ahead of, way ahead of the time. He was bringing a certain sensibility from Europe that was done in American way, both in plating. Wiley created a whole new of, new way of plating. He wasn't copying Gagnier. He wasn't copying Alain Passard. He wasn't copying Ferran Adria. He was doing it in a way that had never been done in an American prism. And quite frankly, when he told people he wasn't doing salads and he was doing no techniques, it was all out of the comfort zone of diners and critics. And I think we were better because of it. And he got a lot of reviews that were, quite frankly, like some of them were good, but some of them just didn't understand it. And God damn it, that pisses the shit out of me still because he shouldn't be punished because the critics didn't fucking get it. 
This industry is too hard to begin with, and we have so few original voices out there, it fucking pains me to see this kind of shit happen. So I really hope we can have a more open mind to things, and we can really celebrate the individuals that are trying to do something different in a world of fucking everyone copying each other. There's very, very few people. And I know the irony is that someone like Josh is literally sort of copying herself, himself right now. But I'm telling you, that is something that should be studied right now. Seriously. It's something that's a little bit more complex than I want to talk about right now. Anyway, I got off topic. I'm sorry. Jared, thank you so much for sending that question in. On a more lighthearted note, here's a second question for Rob Sampson. I remember a long time ago, you did a Q&A on your Instagram story where you said your favorite soccer player was Paul Gascon. Gaza comes from the same area as me and started his career playing for our hometown club, Newcastle United. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit on why you picked Paul Gascon, please? Um, I don't even know if I'm pr- ever pronouncing his name right. And I lived in London, <laughs> oh, man, shit, 1996 or 95. Anyway, when I lived there, I I was just there was no internet, quite frankly. And I I I the one thing I do love is sports. And I would read all the sort of newspapers. And I didn't even have a TV. And it was the summer there, like the summer of ninety-five, I, I think, or ninety-six. I can't remember, but I was like nineteen years old. And I sort of fell in love with this guy. He just following it is his exploits. And I think about the kind of person I was back then, and I just love someone that was so incredibly talented as Paul, uh, his nickname being Gaza, like one of the most talented players ever, but he should never have like had these opportunities. And he sort of ultimately, I guess, succumbed to a lot of his default settings. And I just love that dichotomy of a player. He was like David Wells to me. I hate the, I hate the Yankees, but. I love like David Wells, for instance, and the same reason, I guess the best, best way to describe why I love Gaza was when I would read about his exploits, when I would find out a little bit more about a sport that I knew nothing about, it was a lot easier to root for him and what he was doing. And I guess like, I don't even know if he was in soccer that year, but it just seemed like he was the player that everyone was talking about, widely beloved, widely hated, incredibly talented, but had sort of this like, Greek tragedy, like sort of combustion to it. And for the same reason I love David Wells as a pitcher, it's why I loved Gaza. So um, it's been a long time since I even thought that, but I don't know if I answer your question, but anytime someone asked me who my favorite player was, it was him because I think that he was the last kind of like athlete where you would see them like smoking butts and drinking beers and not sort of working out 365 days a year. And he was just sort of like a real dude and he had real fucking problems. Um, so find out more about him. It's, he's a fascinating figure and I hope he's doing well. Anyway, I've talked enough. Thank you all for listening. Stay tuned next week. Please give us five stars. However you listen to this podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Thank you so much, guys. Take it easy, everyone. <laughs>